Good evening. Um, it's a pleasure to be back here. I was reflecting that I think the last time I was actually in this uh, lecture theatre was when I was president of the Royal College uh, of, uh, of Physicians. And what I'm going to try and do this evening is take you on the journey that I've been on. Um, I never expected to become the National Director for Health and Work. Um, I was really rather frightened when I started it. Um, and I probably think it's the best job I've ever done um, because I've actually grown um, in a way which has extended was my medical training for me to really at last understand the determinants of health. And I'll start by telling you what I think I'm quite ashamed of now, that I sat for many years as a consultant in outpatient depart uh, department, as a rheumatologist, I always tried to take um, a good history. I think I took a reasonable occupational history, not a very good one. And if someone had a job, and that job might be questionable in terms of risk, I did concern myself. But if they said, I am not at work, I never once in my whole clinical career said, why are you not at work? Would you like to be at work? And what can I do to help? Never once, because I didn't actually think it was part of my business. I really think that I also took people out of work, because I would sit there with a bad rheumatoid patient and say, don't you think it would be easier if you didn't have to go to work every day? Perhaps you'd like to work part-time, or I'll support you if you want to give up. I really am quite ashamed that I behaved that way now that I really understand what the effects of not being able to work does to individuals, to families, and to society. And I wish it had been in my medical training that I should actually take a holistic view um, to... Um, it's going to work for me. Is it going to move? No. Sorry, just, oh. just that one. Oh, it's that one. I'm on the wrong... Let me get rid of that. Yes. Um, and so what I'm going to try and do in this lecture is really cover the relationship between work and health. And then looking at the workplace where 27 million, more 27.5 million of us go every day, the value of that place to support improving public health because people are a captive audience there and therefore it ought to be a place of prevention and promotion. And the determinants of health are not really whether you just get rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes, as important as they are. It's the things that are on this slide. And work and unemployment is very firmly there in the middle. And yet I'm sure we, as doctors, have never really thought much about it. I had not thought about it um, at all. I've been on a very steep uh, learning curve in the last... Um, five and a half years. And I suppose really at the base of all this is the fact that to have a stable and flourishing society, and if we wish to have a welfare state, then we need the maximum number of productive years from as many people as possible. Because those who cannot work for whatever reason really depend on those who are paying taxation. So we need the relationship between earners and wealth generators to be in the right direction because we have to support children, 
we're supporting pensioners, we're supporting those who genuinely cannot go to work. There are some people who we know could go to work. We might, with a bit of encouragement, perhaps persuade them to be there. But we want that ratio to be in the right direction. So being sufficiently healthy, whether that's mental health or physical health, mm -hmm. is a condition for work. And I think it is a perfectly reasonable goal for us to try and maximise healthy life as a proportion of our total life for both individuals and society. Yet we know one of the big worries at the moment is that not only our population in the UK, but in many developed countries, we are going to live longer, which is a good thing, but we may well live longer with more chronic diseases, and some of those diseases may well impinge our ability to work. So minimising ill health and mitigating its effect on, uh, on function across the social gradient, and I'll come back to that, enabling us to participate in work and extending working life is important. Whilst we are um, uh, working longer, this graph shows both for males and females that it's not enough, and you can see the lines are diverging uh, rather, than, uh, rather than coming together. And for men, the gap in 84 was 16.3 years, the gap in 2010, now 21 years. And you can see a gap, too, for women, although um, not, uh, not quite to the same extent. So it's true that we're working longer. Often, working beyond um, retirement age, maybe not full-time, but many, many people are continuing to work. Now, I'm not really quite sure why we never got it into the training of a health professional. Um, what Galen said all those years ago, that employment is nature's physician and it's essential to human happiness. And I think for a lot of people, having a meaning in life is related to whether they are doing meaningful things of which, of which work can be a very large part. And on the whole, but not always, Work is generally good for health, um, but work needs to be good work. None of what I'm saying this evening relates to people having bad jobs. Bad jobs are not good for health, on the contrary. And um, it's taken us really a long time, I think, to even start to think this way. And you'll see there that quote, um, that work is good for man is supported by evidence and consensus saying to physicians, this was from um, the American Medical Association, that a physician's role is to encourage work and to return to work as part of treatment. I fail that test absolutely and completely as a practising uh, doctor. The evidence that being out of work is really rather bad for your health is strong, and you can see that it leads to poorer physical health, it leads to poorer mental health. It usually is associated with you requiring more med medical care, lack of self-confidence, obviously less monetary resources, <coughs> social implosion rather than really an outward approach to life. It gets, life gets narrower and narrower. And there is a literature um, about children and the effect of children on their families or, or a member of their family not working. And, and children um, die more frequently from injuries either within the home or outside the home, particularly um, accidents, 
in parents who are of low employment status, and that was published in the British Medical Journal. So I think it's something we should concern ourselves with. The good news is, actually, if you can return someone to work, this isn't a permanent state of misery. So the poor health that you might develop if you're unemployed can actually be uh, reversed. And you can see um, the, this effect on emotional reaction. Um, a, a score, a high score, is not a good thing. Um, and also in social isolation and physical mobility. So re-employment of the right sort of work will generally improve health and well-being. And yet, in 2005, when I took on the role as National Director for Health and Work, um, I think at last the government started to think that this topic was of importance. It hadn't been of importance to politicians or civil servants. It was very much on the back burner. But the, the government became increasingly conscious that too many people were leaving the labour market with a health problem, yet we know you don't have to be 100% fit to be in work, otherwise nobody with diabetes would be in work, nobody with osteoarthritis would be in work. We know that that's not, not an absolute requirement. Sickness absence was a persistent problem. The tap was not being turned off at all. So although people were being returned from our benefit system back into the labour market, the flow on was constant. So the figures never really got any better. A rising bill for welfare benefits, concerns about the reduced productivity and competitiveness for UK PLC due to absence from work and people being at work but not giving of their best. And of course, global companies no longer have to put their factories and their businesses in the UK. There are plenty of countries who do not have the same record as we have um, for our productivity and, uh, and lack of competitiveness in some sectors. We obviously had a rising bill for healthcare. And then in addition, if that wasn't enough, an ageing population, increasing chronic disease and an epidemic of obesity. And obesity is a real, a real challenge to employment. Um, it's been very interesting to me in the last two years that the very macho people who run our construction industry, um, who really didn't ever want to think about health and work of their employees, they went to work, um, they knew that when these men could no longer do the job, there'd be plenty more to come and take over, have actually come and said, we need, we need to get better informed about health, both physical and mental, about people's well-being, because a fat construction worker is an added danger. He's going to be less safe. Um, you're not going to want him to go up cranes or down holes. And the other sector that's recently started to talk to me, where before I don't think they were particularly interested, are the railways. Because you really do not want your train driver to get sleep apnea as he drives you from London to Glasgow. So we may think it doesn't affect competitiveness and business, but it absolutely does. And these figures really speak for themselves. And it's not just the physical fact of obesity. It is, of course, the diseases that are associated with it. So that is indeed um, an additional problem. And this is where the workplace 
can support our public health issues and can actually make it at least um, a good thing to participate in, in schemes that work and offer bicycle schemes, whether they provide a gym, whether they develop um, a walking group, etc., etc. Um, so there is a role, I think, very much for the workplace. Just to think about obesity and its consequences, which anyway, you will all know, by 2025, 40% of us will be obese. And the number of people living with chronic conditions um, will rise, I think I'm correct to say, with the fifth fattest nation in the world now. That wasn't so 15 or, or 20 years ago. And of course, obesity is associated with some pretty serious conditions. So it was in 2005 that the government wrote um, its strategy, health, work and well-being, caring for our future. It was a strategy where they wanted the positive links between health and work to be recognised by all, and that's a very big ask by whether it be employers, whether it be health professionals, whether it be our trade unions, whether it be employees. And at the time, the people in power, and I think to their credit, recognised there was a need for change. And whether that be the politicians or whether it be the civil servants, there was a real desire to try and get this up the agenda. And they decided to have a national director for health and work to try and get the message out there, to raise the profile. It was a cross-government appointment, which was a very interesting thing to try and do because government departments work in silos. They don't very often um, talk to each other. My job was to get them to talk to each other. There was funding uh, for four five years. It wasn't a big amount of funding, but it did allow it um, to get off the ground. And so, really, that was the beginning of this uh, movement. As Nigel said, one of the first things I was asked to do um, was to review the health and well-being of the working age population and to try and identify um, the factors that stood in the way of people being able to be well and in work and to make um, some recommendations, whether they be in terms of practical things that needed to change or whether it be in attitudes and behaviours, which, of course, are so much more difficult um, to change. And I divided the, uh, the report into trying to prevent, promote, intervene early, and then to try and improve the health of those who were workless because that was one of the barriers. There were many but their health, whether it be mental or physical, it was one of the barriers to them getting back into the workplace. I found a lot of things that stood in the way, and I won't go through this whole list with you, but I did divide them into culture, beliefs and attitudes. The real belief that you have to be 100% fit um, to be in work. A tremendous medicalisation of very complex psychosocial problems. We have a medical certificate... A doctor has to write a medical diagnosis on there, whereas we know that underneath that diagnosis there may well be many other problems which prolong the return to work long after the medical reason has perhaps settled down. Um, increasingly, I've become aware of the real role that managerial attitudes play 
in people being or not going back to work. I hate my line manager. I cannot stand that place of work. I am not going back. I will collect my sick notes and I will go into the benefit system rather than go back to work because I'll be made sick again. We've seen that so much. It was something I had no idea about. I've called it the never going back syndrome because that's what it was. I am never going back. Found lots of inadequate systems, um, some of which we have tried to correct, and I'll give you my view on whether we've been successful or not. A real appreciation that we had no vocational rehabilitation in this country that was anyway national or established or even talked about by health professionals. We didn't have sufficient occupational health advice, particularly for our GPs, and therefore there was poor support in those areas that would take people back to work. Of course, rehabilitation to work has never been a performance measure for any of our primary care trusts, um, and therefore you tend to do uh, what you're going to be judged upon and what you're going to be measured upon. Um, but in fact, as it is part of health, I think that we could have thought more carefully um, about, uh, about what we might do in that area. And then, as you know, the configuration of occupational health services left outside of the National Health Service when it was formed, not available to GPs, as every other specialty is. And I did a very small chapter, and I now wish it had been larger, on the next generation. Because, of course, in fact, it's our children and our young people who are going to be the workers for tomorrow, and yet could they be sustainable workers? And what about their own um, environment at home and, in fact, the role models they had um, in their home as to whether work was a good or bad thing? And I've come more and more to really appreciate the Foresight Report on Mental Capital and Wellbeing, where you see this real trajectory um, from school through to work, through to retirement, and really the real importance of that early part of life in enabling people to grow up to be healthy and well um, and sustainable workers. In my conclusions in that report, I told the government what it was costing them. Um, it cost over £100 billion a year, the cost of sickness, absence and worklessness, at that time, the bill for the National Health Service in the year I published was £107 billion. So it was the cost every year of running our health service. I said it would diminish the quality of life in Britain if we didn't do something about it. And I felt it would be a constant cycle of poverty and dependency um, if we left people uh, workless, and particularly workless families. And I said we should act... And we should all act together. Because people often say to me, well, what's the government going to do? Well, the government can do so much, but there are many other players um, in this agenda. I'll just come back to, um, to the children because it, it really is for us to really understand that the children are today are our working age population of tomorrow. They are the people who are going to be the earners um, of the next generation and how do we support them to be healthy, educated about the benefits of work and empowered to choose to work 
and also empowered to understand what a healthy workplace is. Just give you two examples that I've worked at the Royal Free in Hampstead for many, many years, which is in the borough of Camden, and we have some of the richest population in the borough of, of Camden and some of the very poorest. We've got a high proportion of people aged between 20 and 40, so it's a young population. Um, a third of the children live in households that rely on state benefits. One in three of our households are overcrowded, and many local people, especially those who do live in, in poverty and in social housing, are disadvantaged either by disability, illness, and are often without work. And yet next door, um, we have some of the leafiest and wealthiest neighbourhoods. And you can see the difference in life expectancy. It takes you about two miles um, of, of travel uh, between uh, Hampstead and St Pancras and Somers Town to see that difference. And you can see we have a young population, we have some problematic drug users, and a very high percentage of that population work. And that is the sort of population that, of course, is a huge problem. But just to give you a good news story, and I really like the story and I really respect what John Lewis have done here. They're, they're a splendid firm to work for and they do really care about the health and well-being of their staff. But they opened a flagship store that overlooks the Olympic Park. Um, they opened it in 2011. Of course, their employees are called partners um, because that is, is, is the particular form of, of arrangement they have for their employees. 75% of them um, were from local postcodes, and they tried very hard to give jobs to the young people there, many of whom were unemployed, so 65% between the age of 16 to 29. And 175 of these employees were recruited from long-term unemployment. So some of those young people had never been to work. Some of them had lost their jobs and had just drifted. And it's very interesting talking to the occupational health service um, that, that supported uh, uh, this particular store. Um, they had to do a work-hardening programme for these young people. They said these young people didn't know how to get up at 9 o'clock in the morning to go to work because that's not what they'd been doing. They had not had to do that. Many of them turned up to work to start with in clothes, which you wouldn't really think a customer might want you to be in. You know, they didn't really. They weren't, if you like, thinking they were going to be dealing with customers and there would be a dress code. But most of all, they got tired by 2 o'clock in the afternoon and wanted to go home. And they told me it was a real effort to persist, to keep these young people on board and to help them get ready and used to work, to become sustainable workers. So they had on-site daily physiotherapy. Um, they had to develop their physical fitness um, and they had to have special training courses. But the great thing was um, that they told me that at least four of these young people they believe they've identified to be future managers. So, you know, it, it, it just gives you a feeling that you really must start young on this agenda. And if you don't start young, these young people will be sitting in our benefit system for a very, very um, long time. So I think that's a rather nice story. Just to give you very crudely the employment and health 
stats for the UK at the moment. 26% um, of people in work have got a health condition or disability, which obviously makes the point that we don't have to be 100% fit to be there. 2.4% off sick, we'd like that number to be less. We have, of course, a lot of inactive people, and many of those people may well be students, carers, mothers, etc. Um, and you can see there among them, there's a lot with a health condition, disability. When I did my review, I really wanted to try and understand what lay behind that health, that number, and the health conditions or disabilities. We never had time to really go into that. But how many of those people could be helped to be productively in employment. And then there is obviously a group of people who are unemployed. You see there that mental health is the key driver, particularly for those who sit in our, our benefit system. Many of them have got a mental health condition, often starting as mild, not major schizophrenia, but mild mental health condition that has just become <coughs> rather chronic. The journey from work to welfare is something that the government is now thinking about very seriously, and they will report on the second review that I and David Scott did for them last year, which is to look at this journey. And, of course, as doctors, we really play our part, either well or not so well as I described. I played it um, in this first box because this is the box where we're either in work or collecting our medical certificates. And the truth is that we as doctors are the gateway to the benefit system. Now, in hospital practice, you don't write so many. Um, I wrote a few, but very few. But I gave a lot of rather bad advice. But our GPs write a large number of these. And it's that writing of those notes that if you write 20 weeks of them, the person on average has a 15% chance of returning to their job. Most of them will go in that dreadful direction down to work, towards the work capability assessment, which has caused so much unhappiness and misery. And they sit around in that box waiting for this assessment. And they are supposed to only sit around for 13 weeks, but many of them sit around for 20 or more. They're detached from the labour market. They're not actually being helped um, in any way, hardly to find work or to solve the problems that stop them working. And as you know, many of them just go on further, either into employment support allowance or job seekers allowance. And the government system has been devised so that all the real help actually starts to come in when you're in the benefit system. And so little of the help is given to people who actually are close to the labour market. So the whole thing is completely um, the wrong way round. And when you think about it, two-thirds of the things that stop us working are problems, they're not diseases. They're not divine, defined pathological conditions. It's I've got back pain, I've got neck pain, I've got fibromyalgia. Um, they're high prevalent across the population. I'm anxious, I'm stressed. Most episodes you would hope could settle rapidly, though, as you all know, 
these symptoms often persist or recur. And when they do, that is the thing that drives the journey. But as I said, underneath that are the psychosocial factors that are hugely important, and many of them reside in the workplace, although they're never described on the medical certificate. You never read a medical certificate that says Mr. Smith cannot go to work because he has back pain, a very poor manager, he's got added carer responsibilities at home, and he's in debt, and the whole thing is that life is too much. Now, who's going to solve all those problems? No doctor is going to be able to solve them all. And yet we've medicalised it so that a doctor has to sign that certificate. And then we don't have an adequate way of helping that person with their problems return to the labour market. But we've devised that system. And I think we should learn how to stop doing that and to do it really rather, rather differently. The mental health challenge is enormous, as you will all well know. One in six adults suffer from a common mental health disorder at some times in their life. And you can see that 60% are less likely to be employed and often they're in that inactive group that I showed you earlier, those 48% with a, health, with a disability or, or health condition. And we know that individuals with mental health conditions have the lowest employment rate of all other health categories. I quite like this, uh, this piece of research uh, from some Scandinavian colleagues. This is looking at back pain in employees looking at the factors uh, that, uh, uh, that are the predictors of back pain. Well, it's not, uh, do you have a heavy manual job? It's not, uh, are you sitting poorly at work in a bad chair? As you can see there, the predictors are, do you have any autonomy at work? What's the decision control? Which is all about, do you have good work? Do you have empowering leadership or do you have people who really are not good leaders and really do not treat you well at work? And is that leadership fair or is it unfair? Now, you can't ever see that in anything that's written medically. But you could order 10 sets of physiotherapy treatment and yet you would not have solved the problem and the person will only probably go back to work for a short time and then be out of work again. And this is not new. A, uh, a colleague sent me this as I was doing my first review and said, you know, Carol, none of this is new. If you just go back and look in the medical literature, you'll find that they knew about this um, at least 50 years ago. So this is Walter Cheeseman, the medical advisor to the Treasury, um, describing really what I've just said to you extremely well. Absenteeism is a much more complex problem because although disease initiates absence, i.e. what's written on the sick note, the time taken to return to work is influenced by many factors, social factors, little to do with medicine, and the pathological diagnosis of the disease is often in doubt. And dissatisfaction from, with working conditions can often be counteracted by escape which can include ill health and absence. So it isn't new, but nobody, nobody has acted on it for all those years, and yet uh, we can see that people did think about it. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, 
of what do you do for people who've now got real illness and long-term conditions? How do you ensure they have the opportunity, if they've had cancer, to be in work if they want to be in work after treatment? Because that is now becoming, not it's not a huge problem, but it is certainly a challenge because cancer, thank goodness, is becoming a chronic condition and not an automatic uh, death sentence. And we know that we're having to deal with more long-term conditions. We know that GPs are burdened by these conditions. They account for a huge number of GP appointments and a very large number of outpatient and A&E appointments, and more expensively, indeed, inpatient beds. And just to also put it in the context of the social uh, gradient that if you look at the stats, then those people who live in poor, um, in, in poor living conditions and in, in a poor living environment will often have more diseases. They'll have several diseases and they will often be more prevalent and of greater severity in, uh, in uh, such uh, environments. And this one here, I'm sorry, we'll go to it, is learning. Dis uh, learning disabilities over there is, is mental health and, uh, and skin, skin conditions come quite high on that, uh, on that histogram. And so those living in deprived areas often have worse real physical ill health. And so what could a workplace do? And what we've been trying to do, one of the things we've been doing in the last two years is um, developing pledges for workplaces called the Public Health Responsibility Deal. And part of that is to put toolkits behind it so that an employer here, this is our toolkit, our advice for line managers on supporting employees with long-term medical conditions to say, look, what are the good things generically that you should do, let's say, to help your patient with rheumatoid? How are you going to be flexible because that might help while they're getting the doctors getting the disease under control. Are you prepared to perhaps adjust the working environment, perhaps provide a better chair? Are you going to realise the person needs to perhaps be able to move because they will get uh, they will get stiff? These very generic guidance with a lot of signposting um, to where you can get um, much better help. And I just want to pay tribute. Um, in, in saying that what the, co the charities are doing because I've done a lot of work now with Macmillan and what they do for helping people with cancer get back to work. Diabetes UK is excellent, the British Heart Foundation, the Lung Foundation and Arthritis Research UK have all become much more interested in, uh, in helping people retain their jobs. And uh, this is the Macmillan's latest effort to help small businesses, because they often have no occupational health, they have no HR, it's mm -hmm. really difficult um, for them to do the right thing. So this has just mm -hmm. been published, it's the support on cancer uh, for small businesses, how you can uh, how you can deal with it. It's an online um, tool. So I think we're seeing a growth of, of our big charities become interested in this area. And I think for people with real physical illness to be able to stay in work, you do need motivated, well-informed patients. 
you need very good clinical care, both at the general practice level and at the hospital level, and you need flexibility and adaptation in the workplace, and very often you get one or the other of those. Difficult sometimes to get them all together. So my own specialty, rheumatoid arthritis, five years out from the diagnosis of rheumatoid, more than 40% of rheumatoid patients have given up work or are working very few hours. Now, we've got anti-TNF drugs. We've got excellent therapy. So what on earth is going on if having spent the money invested in drugs, having got better care, we then can't keep these people functional and able to be in work? Well, I think it's a mixture of these three things not all getting coordinated and together. So I think really what I'm saying is there are many players that absolutely have to come together um, to do this. When I started this work, the trade unions really disliked me and they used to write dreadful things about because they thought I was trying to take people who were sick back into the workplace, which I absolutely wasn't trying to do. I was trying really to get people to see that you could get people well enough and motivated enough to be at work and it might help. So what do I think we need of our health professionals? Well, I think we need to shift our culture and then our behaviour. We really need everybody in health to understand that work is a determinant of health and that a return to function, in my book, should be a clinical outcome. Because what's the use of giving somebody a new hip if that hip is not going to be of any particular value to them? And if they were a worker and they wanted to return to work and you haven't asked that question, then I think you've probably done about half of the job. I wanted to come on now to really say what I personally think has happened to the fit note. This is not the Department of Work and Pensions view. This is my view, having recommended that we change the statutory instrument and that we had a fit note and not a sit note. And do I think that has been a success? Well, this is what Mark Gabby, a GP, wrote in Occupational Medicine just as these changes were, were in. And it was, they'd been in a few months when Mark wrote this. And he said GPs will find themselves at the centre of these issues Attempts to ignore these realities and carry on regardless are not likely to serve our patients, our communities or ourselves well. And he definitely acknowledged the gatekeeper role um, that our general practitioners play. But he said GPs could really be a power for good in this area. They do have the potential to discuss and negotiate options with patients they can signpost to relevant support and they can work with other agencies and where possible, although I've acknowledged that we don't have enough occupational health services where they are available and that this would be a really good thing to do. So <coughs> although I think some GPs have found it very difficult to see that a fit note might be a good thing, I think there are many GPs who would like to see it um, used more effectively. But as I said, the medical certificate um, has on it the medical reasons for illness, 
but actually they're all the other things. And if you don't manage to solve the other things, then you cannot really return this person to work. So the progress since legislation in April 2010, I think the formulation is a good one. I think it, it's a clear form. It gives good options now. It's no longer a binary note of 100% fit or 100% unfit. And when it's used as we intended it to be a communication vehicle between a general practitioner and an employer, when the GP speaks to the function of their patient, what do they think their patient is functionally capable of, then it does serve the purpose we hoped it would serve and the employer can make use of it and one would hope would make um, adaptations. From the surveys, 53% of GPs say it's improved advice given and they have been advising more often that their patients might return to work. And thank goodness an electronic form started this year. But we know that less than 20% of these notes are filled in properly. And it may be considerably less than that. Um, it's this business of, does the medical practitioner think about the person's job that they've got? Or is there any possibility that one could think about the person's capability to work with adaptation? Um, employers say they want clear information and better occupational advice. We know that our general practitioners are sometimes conflicted because of advocacy, and they do feel obliged to give notes for non-medical reasons. 23% of our GPs only feel they have a knowledge of the benefit system, but they're the gatekeepers. So do I think it's worked? I think in some places it has worked. Is it a disappointment to me? Yes, it is. It would be foolish of me to stand here and say um, that I'm not disappointed with the uptake, that I would have hoped it would have done more than it has, and therefore I do think it needs to be strengthened if that's going to happen. This gives you uh, um, some of the um, Department of Work and Pensions survey work on GPs' attitudes towards patients' health and work, and it is improving. Um, improve the discussion with patients. Um, you can see fully agree is, is going from this side through to the blue, big fully disagree. Improved work advice given to patients, um, sort of just over 50%. But we're still, we've still quite a long way um, to go. An enormous effort has been made by Nigel and his colleagues to provide a national education programme for general practitioners, whether that be at the face-to-face -face level or whether it be online. And more recently, I think a great um, advance has been that the face-to-face -face workshops have taken place in places of employment. So the GPs have been there with the employers and that has permitted a much better exchange of views so the GP could see what upsets the employer employer could see what upsets the um, GPs and these these workshops have been very very well attended and I think really Nigel we could do with a much bigger program of them um, around uh, around the country we've tried to improve vocational rehabilitation and some of you will know this is the fit for work service early vocational rehabilitation 
in which GPs could refer to a fully funded um, multidisciplinary fit for work service. We have seven of them still ongoing around the country. They'll finish by March of next year. Um, and we hope there will be enough from them to develop a sustainable model. I only put this slide in because you can see what actually was the problem when people were referred. Um, it wasn't 75% musculoskeletal. And in this particular fit-for-work pilot, this is in Leicester, um, not a great amount of mental health health, but an awful lot of personal support, mediation, and never going back syndrome, I need a different job. So this really tells us that we, we haven't yet got, the, um, got our services right. And this is just an interim evaluation. It's not quantitative, it's only qualitative. But you can see the things that were light, quick access, ongoing case management. The money that was put in there did allow fast access to physiotherapy and psychotherapy, better communication and much better advice. But will this model be um, economically sustainable? We don't know. We've had a lot of help from the medical rural colleges and particularly um, from our surgical colleagues and Obsengaini um, in terms of how do you rehabilitate back to work after common operations. So, um, they, they've provided us with good guidance on that and most recently from the College of Psychiatrists on mental health and work and that's been very helpful. Just to give you just two examples, this is rheumatoid arthritis. I've mentioned how difficult it is for people to return to work but this is what the National Audit Office told us about ourselves. 55% of hospitals we're aware of the very helpful scheme which the government has called access to work, but 33% of these didn't give the information to patients with rheumatoid, and yet that would provide you with some of the very practical support to go to work. And you can see that many of our patients considered that neither we in the departments of rheumatology nor our GP colleagues really did what we should be doing in terms of employment and uh, the cost of the economy um, of 1.8 billion per year. Cancer is another example and you can see there the average fall in household income for a family of working age with cancer is 50%, 17% lose their home and yet many cancer patients would wish to remain in work should they get the right support. And so this is a uh, recent initiative um, by, the, um, uh, by Macmillan. It's, uh, again, vocational rehabilitation. And you can, uh, you can see there the sorts of things that patients would like. They don't want us to discuss work at the end of their treatment. They want us to discuss it early. They want us to give consistent messages and they want their line managers to be supportive. So I think we are beginning to learn about what patients want in terms of chronic conditions and how everybody can really play their part. So just very finally, I said at the beginning that the workplace can support public health effectively. 
I think most men do not readily and easily go to their GPs and probably wouldn't go to find out if they were well. They probably go um, when they're when they think they're sick. I think women have a much greater contact in a way because they often, anyway, will take their children um, to their family doctor. But can we augment the good messages about health and well-being through a really positive employer? And I personally think we can. And although Andrew Landley's had a real bashing over the bill, um, he's been the only Secretary of State that I've known that's been able to link health and work effectively and want to do something about it. And Andrew started his public health responsibility deal, delivered through five networks. I've been chairing the Health at Work network for him. And the whole idea is a voluntary relationship between the institution, the organisation, whether public or private, to develop, or rather to use pledges that have been developed to support the employee. I have eight pledges. Um, they cover, as you will see, pretty much um, the gamut of uh, public health. And we've also included the excellent uh, national standards for occupational health providers and their accreditation um, system. And we are just about to launch our eighth pledge, which is a young person's pledge about keeping people healthy at work. I'm awaiting anxiously, certainly, and I suspect a few other people are, what the government is going to say about the sickness absence review um, in uh, which we did last year. But in that is a thing that we call the Independent Assessment Service, which we hope would be a supportive service to GPs to strengthen the, um, the fit note. So, really, very finally, um, I wish, as I said right at the beginning, that when I was in full-time clinical practice, I would have thought what I've written on this slide at the bottom. I wish that I had thought each time I stopped someone falling out of work. I might have helped a family. I might have helped society. And I might have helped that person's sense of self-worth and dignity. So I hope you can see I've been on a journey um, as I've done this work. But I am really, really keen to see health professionals really embrace the concept of work and health. And I very much hope as we go forward that we can strengthen the fit note and that we can make it possible to have what I would almost call a nascent national occupational health service, although I certainly would not be allowed by anybody to call it that um, publicly. So thank you very much for listening. I'm very happy to take any questions.